right. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you the example of, of the hippo that charged me. It started at about eight yards. And as soon as I got a visual of it, you know, I had my hands on my rifle kind of at, at low ready and came into my shoulder, which was a very quick move. Mm-hmm. And as soon as it touched my shoulder, potentially before it touched my shoulder, <laughs> I fired and I hit it directly between the eyes. Wow. Okay. This is not a good shot. That's a bad shot. That is a shot in the, in the sinus cavity. Mm. So if anything, he accelerated. So my next shot was as I was stepping to the side and it was a point blank range with gun barrel touching it. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. Mr. Daniel Horner. Mr. Nash. What's the weather like out there today? Man... We just had a small wannabe hurricane roll through, and it's uh, the first band is over with, and now we are sitting here waiting for the next significant storm to hit. Miss Jordan Bud, where are we sitting? Kodiak, Alaska. Kodiak proper. <clears throat> proper? We're in town. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we are in town. And we also have... Mr. Patrick Hanley. How no, are you? no introduction needed. <laughs> no introduction needed. <laughs> yeah, you've already been on the show. Um, everybody except for Dan has been on the show. Oh. Yeah, but here you are. Sweet. Here we are. So we're up here in Kodiak. We've been doing some mountain goat hunting, and uh, we're going to do some Sitka blacktail hunting. We did a little salmon fishing, and we're testing some products. So, Patrick, you want to talk a little bit about what we're testing? Yeah, so uh, we came up here with kind of the intent to uh, do some testing, first and foremost, on the cross rifle, which is, you know, something that we did last year in Colorado, but we did it with a prototype product that we ended up going back and we made several changes based on both testing and what we found last year when we were in Colorado, so we we updated, we made these changes, and then the goal this year was to have production rifles. And uh, we actually cut that pretty close, but we ended up here with the production off-the-line cross. Um, we have the 277 Sig Fury with a, uh, a new uh, bullet from last year. We were shooting last year the Elite Tipped Hunter, and uh, we ended up finding out that we wanted something a little bit uh, a little bit different for big game and we ended up going to the acubon 150 which we brought up here and we've gotten some uh yeah a real world testing already done on it and then we did the uh sierra 6 uh scopes which is the newest line of bdx so we added to the sierra 3 family uh the reticle the antenna all the stuff that they made the changes on i think we kind of wanted to bring them up here and put them to the test and um and then the final one, which will be later to be revealed, was a special 320 that we were using up here in uh, in Bear Country um, that we had on our chest, both fishing and while we were hunting. Dan, we hunted Colorado together last year. You'd never killed an elk before. About 15 minutes into 
opening morning, you shot a six-point bull elk. Yeah, it was pretty cool. On public land. Yeah, public land. Public schmublick. You kill (laughs) a six-point bull elk, they're not easy, no matter how you do it. Um, The way we did it was the hardest way that you can possibly elk hunt, which is, you know, there's a few factors that go into me saying that. Um, It was public land, for sure. It was an over-the-counter tag. It was high elevation, and it was backcountry with backpacks, and it was cold. So if you've ever tried to backpack hunt in the cold, what you'll quickly realize is that the gear you need just to survive will rapidly fill up a very large backpack, and you still need the capacity to bring all your hunting equipment and then be able to bring meat out. And when you're talking about a bull elk that's, you know, anywhere between 650 and 800 pounds on the hoof, like it turns into a heck of a lot of meat, a heck of a lot of meat and a lot of weight. And it was steep. And, uh, yeah, you, you're the magic man. You just rolled in there and got it done. Yeah, it was pretty cool, man. We woke up that morning, uh, went down the backside of the ridge we were on and got set up and we were, you know, looking around. And, uh, as soon as first light hit, we saw cows uh in the opposing tree line about 400 yards away or so and they were uh they were feeding right toward us and in the back was this big old beautiful six by six bull he came out 350 yards stood broadside and um took the shot off of a tripod and uh that was 277 fury like like uh, patrick said and put him down and uh yeah then started the uh started the real work uh, it was nice to have uh, people there that knew what they were doing that were able to cut that weight down, you know, get the get the bones out of it, get the weight down as much as we could because we had quite the quite the haul out of there. And that's sort of the the highlight reel, but honestly, just getting to where we were was was a huge feat in itself. And even before you leave the truck with your pack on and start going the reality of doing a hunt of, of this scale, like we had, we had a camera crew, right? Oh, yeah. We had multiple camera crews. We had how many people had tags? It was, it was total people with tags was around seven or eight, but we had, we had total on the hunt. There was of the groups. It was 15 people total, 15 people. Yeah. They came from all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I encountered more spreadsheets in the planning for this hunt <laughs> than I encountered in like years of you know Welcome service in the Marine life. Corps. <laughs> and some of the, some of those camera guys, they they were, uh, you know, they had been on some backpack hunts before. They had said, but this was a this was an exceptional one. This was quite a ways in. So just getting in there, you know, you guys all split up equipment. You were helping ca- carry these giant cameras, yeah. batteries, everything. Um, you know, our camera dude got introduced to the boots he was supposed to be hiking in at the trailhead. Yeah, mm-hmm. literally That's a nightmare scenario. Yeah, and he had like a Hollywood cinema camera to haul up to twelve thousand feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was tough. So just just getting in there, you know, you guys were broke off for sure by the time you crested the hill to the point that, you know, I'd come in a different route and I'd left a couple of hours earlier and kind of gone up through this crazy lightning hail um snowstorm and uh, almost got struck by lightning (laughs) literally yeah i think there's a 
there's a picture somewhere out there with me and a, a very serious look on my face, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when trees are kind of popping next to me. But, you know, it was tough. It was a super, super difficult hunt. And uh, we ended up killing a few more bulls and, and everybody pitched in on on just making sure that that thing worked as a team. And we were all helping each other pack stuff out. You guys ended up packing out two bulls on your back yep. later on that week. Yeah, we got another one afterwards. Yeah, it was it was impressive. The yeah, amount of- anybody that's looking to go out there, I would say go with a team of guys that you trust, that you know are going to be there no matter what happens and buy the best gear that you can because yeah. you will not you, – you'll be out there and you don't want to have skimped on, on anything because it'll – It'll be a miserable experience. But. And I, I think the real, the real MVP of that, um, of that trip, would have to be True Pierce and Nick Holloway. Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Because they trailered horses down from Idaho, and you know they probably put on, I don't know, fifty or sixty miles packing meat out for for guys, and you know we were getting meat off the mountain to places that the horses could get to, and those horses got to places that you know was asking a lot of horses. Yeah. And you know, those guys were riding in at night, they're helping bring in water. There's no water anywhere. No. I've it, never been on such a dry hunt. It's a weird area for that. Uh, you know, the 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 second place that we went to, uh there was a, a fair amount of water, but that mountain for the amount of elk that seemed to be in that area, it was pretty crazy that there was almost no water anywhere or if you wanted to get it, you were coming down a pretty significant amount to be able to get to it. And that was my first time laying hands on the cross rifle and it was a prototype at that point and a lot has changed since then. But, you know, we showed up at the airport, drove to a range, sighted in this rifle and then away we went. And then this was kind of the environment that we were testing it in. And after a week of, of hunting with a bunch of very professional guys, we were able to sit down and talk about, you know, what we wanted to change. And then those design implementations started right away. And if you're really thinking about it, if you take a rifle in October and then release it the next year after you've had a, a group of professional hunters and shooters sit down and say, hey, we need to change a bunch of this stuff and actually get it on the street the next year, it's pretty amazing. It is. I don't think a lot of people understand the amount of logistics. I mean, just think about you know a, a gun like this, for example. There's a lot of guns out there. Like if you're looking at an AR-15, there's a lot of common parts on the market. But we built this gun completely from the ground up. So you're talking hundreds of parts you're talking molds you're talking a lot of logistics and when you start making changes you're costing yourself time as soon as you say hey uh this is great but we want to do this you go back and you got to change a mold or you got to alter a part and drawings and all this stuff it's not quick so i mean when we came back out of there you know our goal was to be at chacha with it which we were and our goal was to try to have it by the summertime which we did but there was a lot of people at sig that have less hair than they started with from this whole adventure. Because like I said, it, it's super, super easy uh, in the gun world to make something that exists and make changes to it. But to start from scratch, which this gun was 100% new parts, it's much, much, much more difficult. And then every time you change one part, all of the testing starts all exactly. the way back over. Everything goes right back to the beginning. Um, and I'm, I'm still new to the production side of things so i don't understand all of it but what is a drawing a drawing well that's uh the boston saying for drawing oh okay (laughs) gotcha if you live in the northeast (laughs) we call them drawings (laughs) just like we have bathrooms 
So you learned something today. <laughs> oh, I'm planning on learning a lot more. <laughs> and Jordan, you immediately um, started shooting wolves in Nebraska with that mm-hmm. rifle. Yeah, a couple of them. I was accused of shooting a wolf. It was not a wolf. Well, it's an endangered species in Nebraska, obviously, <laughs> so there was no reason for you to do that, right? Yeah, there was some friction there after. No, so, you know, a picture got, got posted of Jordan with a coyote that, mm-hmm. that she shot with uh, with his cross rifle, and, uh, you know, the, the internet assumed that it was a wolf and mm-hmm. kind of lost its marbles <laughs> yep. there for a second. Definitely lost their marbles, yeah. I don't know that the internet ever really had its marbles. No. No, it didn't. Because it was, uh, there was, I don't even think there was anybody on there saying like, you idiots, that's a coyote. No, it there was, wasn't a lot. No. I think that's, you know, part of the, the uh, with us, part of the cultural shift at SIG is we're growing into the hunting market. And we have our SIG hunting page, but mm-hmm. we obviously have a lot of uh, people that follow our standard SIG sour site that have probably no affiliation and have mm-hmm. no understanding of the hunting world. And I think that's true for everybody. You know, when you look across the board, any company that tries to get into hunting, whether it's a tent company or a backpack company, they're going out and they're trying to expand themselves into a, a world like that. There's a lot of people who just don't understand or know anything about it that followed their page for another reason. So I think that's a lot of what it ended up being. And you're right. There wasn't a lot of people that realized Mm-mm. relatively quickly that that is a very small wolf that you shot. Yeah. <laughs> it looked nothing like one, but yeah. So let's let's help the people out here. Ways to tell the difference between a wolf and a coyote. Um, and this comes up a lot in places that wolves are moving into, which right now mm-hmm. is more places all the time. Like wolves are expanding their range. The population is expanding rapidly. And whenever wolves are rumored to be in an area, there's always a bunch of folks that see coyotes and think that they're wolves. So one of the really easy ways to tell that you're looking at a wolf is that um, his ears appear to be quite a bit smaller and his tail does not appear to be big and poofy. Um, so their tail is a lot smaller relative to their body. So if they have like a big poofy tail and big upright ears, probably looking at a coyote. And another thing is that at least in Eastern Oregon, uh, about 70% of our wolves are black. And mm-hmm. while black coyotes do occur, it's very, very rare. And especially in, in the West, it's, it's extremely uncommon to see a black coyote. So, Chances are, if you see a group of them, some of them should be black if it's wolves. So so I have a question for you for that. Yeah. So I live out in the east, and we have, for years, there was that kind of misconception because a smaller timber wolf that they still say exists to this day in Maine, and the coyotes were similar in appearance and size in some senses. But out where you guys are, wouldn't the wolves of the West be so much significantly different in size with the wolves that they reintroduced that it would be harder to not tell the difference just based on mass of the animal? You know, it's, it is interesting. And there's a lot of misconceptions about the actual size of this Canadian gray wolf that was, was reintroduced. And they look really big, especially in the wintertime because they put on such a huge coat and a wolf actually gains weight in the wintertime and is smaller during the summertime because in the summer they're working harder and they're raising pups and everything else. Um, in the wintertime, they have a lot more ab- abundant food. You know, their, their prey base is struggling more in the winter and the wolves are part of that struggle. So it's easier for a wolf to eat in the wintertime than it is in the summertime. 
and they have less expenditure because they're really only looking out for themselves at that point. A absolutely gigantic, as big as they get wolf is 130 pounds. Um, the biggest wolf I've ever heard of that actually got weighed by a scientist was 134 pounds. You will hear people say that they saw a 200 pound wolf <laughs> all the time. And the same thing with mountain lions. Um, people who have never weighed a mountain lion in their life will see a lion and be like, oh, that's a 200 pound lion. Probably not. Yep. Like 200 pound lions do occur, but realistically, that's a 180 pound lion that has 20 pounds of deer in its stomach. But if you just see one animal out there, it can be difficult to determine, you know, what his relative size is because you don't really have anything to compare it to. But when you compare a coyote to a wolf, you know, coyotes in the West, I mean, most of them are between 20 and 30 pounds. Mm, yeah. Um, and, uh, I, you talked about coyotes that are hitting 50 or 60 pounds and they definitely have some, some red wolf genetics or some timber yeah, wolf it was, genetics. It was interesting to see that they had, I think it was, it was either outdoor life or field and stream did an article that they actually had scientists measure the skull of the Eastern wolf versus the Western wolf. And the skull size was what showed that they said, uh, as much as one third wolf, bred into the mix of the eastern coyote and it's all it's almost problematic to even call one thing a wolf and one thing a coyote there's 19 subspecies of coyotes mm -hmm. 19 subspecies and the only way that they're actually distinguished is by the region that they live in because it's this spectrumized blend across the country it's not like you know as soon as you hit north dakota now the coyotes are easily identified from eastern montana but eastern Montana and western Montana have a different looking coyote. And it's just how it goes. And when you look at the the DNA code of canines, um, it's very adaptable. That's why we can have chihuahuas and Great Danes. Yep. So you can have all this interbreeding occurring and, you know, you can call something what you want. But realistically, it's it's all a blend. Have you ever heard or do you guys use the term koi dog? Um, I've heard koi wolf. Koi dog is very commonly used in the New England area by a lot of people. A lot of people actually just refer to coyotes as koi dogs. But oh, really? The koi dog was something that, like in Maine, you'll hear it a lot where people over time, like old wives' tale type of talk, was that the domestic animals breeding with the coyotes. And you talk to people and they'd be like, no, 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 that's not a, that's not a coyote. That's a koi dog because right. it had some type of different visual feature mm. that they thought made it look different, but mm -hmm. it's a very, very common use term. And like I said, it became the term that people say for coyotes a lot. So I was interested if it yeah. had actually made its way out. Well, I, I've, and I have heard that and I've seen, um, coyote border collie crosses before, and I've seen pictures of coyotes breeding border collies. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, kind of a terrible looking image to be honest with you, but uh, yeah, it, it's all it's all possible in the realm of canines. So, you know, we we started started with Colorado. We we went through all these changes with the rifle, got this production rifle, actually shipping out to folks. So we're not the only ones that have it anymore, which is great. You know, I, I felt. I felt a little bit guilty, like having mm -hmm. such a cool thing that other people didn't have. Yep. And, you know, I think there, there's people out there that really like that type of feeling. But for me, if I have something good, I want to share it. You know, I want other people to experience that. Now they're finally getting to, mm -hmm. which is awesome. So uh, people are, are going to be hunting this season all over the country with this rifle. And, and it's been fun to hunt with it up here. And, you know, one of the biggest things 
for for this, you know, the gun's six and a half pounds, and that's nice. But the stock also folds. Oh, that was huge. So you want to talk about the brush at all, Jordan? Yeah, the brush was <clears throat> horrible. What is it? Nine, ten feet tall. A lot of places, it a lot varies, of those alders, yeah. yeah. And uh, you're having to climb through it, and that was just so I walked behind you, and that was something that you had the stock folded and mm-hmm. on the back of your pack. Well, it's shorter than your frame is on your pack, so it's not even an issue. Whereas, like the guide has his gun slung over his shoulder, and uh, I know he's got to get to it quickly because of what he needs to use it for. But um, he was having trouble with it going through the brush, just you know, becoming in. It's just like another thing you had to you had to work with, but um, I thought that was huge. Yeah, and it just, everything snags up, right? Yeah. So keeping your pack tight, making sure there's nothing strapped to the outside of your pack, that your, your, your straps are all tucked in, you know, nothing that can hang up because if it can hang up, it will. Mm-hmm. And it's not just that it's, you know, the alders are are tight and it's like a jungle gym going through all of it, but you've also got Devil's Club, you've got this weird parsnip celery that's got some kind of alien toxin Blister, in it yeah, yeah. yeah blister yep um lots of things that can get you out here but one of the things that can get you out here are bears uh mm-hmm. patrick what happened yesterday i uh, had a, uh, a a quick close encounter with a a younger bear he was not a large bear like we saw over when we were down by the water but i uh was doing the proper technique of walking down the river's edge with a rod and saying, hey, bear, every probably 30 yards. And it started to get a little brushy and a little tight. And I just got close enough to him when I said, hey, bear, that I think I startled him. And he was down on the water's edge, probably not on the salmon. And he turned around and just bolted across the trail. And uh, I got a quick little heart stoppage for a second there. And then after that, he just disappeared off into the woods. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, I mean you can see pretty quickly around here how that can escalate quickly because they don't want anything to do with you like you don't want anything to do with them. But it it seems to me like the easiest way to have a bear attack or a bear problem is not seeing one down by the river. It's the one you don't see in the brush that could be the problem just because you could surprise him. And when we were walking through this brush, Jordan, like there was a lot of times that I couldn't see you five feet away. Oh, yeah. At all. So steep too, yeah. Right. And, you know, uh, if a bear was in the mood, all it would have to do is sit still. And then that is the range that that attack is going to come from is just a few feet away. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about a guy needing to have access to a rifle that's, you know, ready, that's the amount of time that you have mm-hmm. is no amount of time at all. Yeah. There's a, there's a time and a place for different types of guns in this situation for me, um, you know, I wasn't carrying a bear defense rifle. I was carrying a bear defense pistol, mm-hmm. but not a bear defense rifle. And, you know, I think you have to have some real honest conversations with yourself about a bear defense pistol. But, Dan, I'm curious because you've spent more time drawing a gun for speed than the average bear, mm-hmm. if you will. <laughs> so can you talk to me a minute about about the draw? Yeah, so... For a situation like that, I would say, well, I don't know, say that you're it. What you're describing, you're going through the brush, and a bear is there, and you surprise him, and he decides the right thing to do is to to go after you. You are behind because he's already attacking at that point, right? So 
you don't have time on your side. So that's not the time to learn how to draw your pistol or to be, to learn how to use your equipment or learn that that strap that is on your backpack is now over the, over your pistol or whatever. Um, you need to really be familiar with that before you get into that situation. So it, you know, five or 10 minutes of dry fire a night for two weeks before you go on something like this, I would say is time very well spent because, you know, you get in that situation, the, you know, if you look on YouTube, you'll see guys going super, super fast, but realistically in that situation, the odds of you getting a draw under a second and a half or two seconds is basically zero. I mean, so if I, if I was in that situation and I've, you know, I've got one pistol, I've got 540,000 rounds on. So I've shot a lot of pistol in that situation. I would be shocked if I got a shot off in under a second and a half because, so I don't know how fast a bear can run in that stuff, but a second half is a significant amount of distance covered. Typically you can count on about eight yards per second. So yeah, you, you're, it's going to be a bad, bad day. You need to, you need to know where your equipment is. You need to be able to get to it. So if best case scenario, I'm at a second and a half and then you get a strap in the way and that slows you down to, to two and a half seconds, you're talking that bear's got to be an extra 24 feet away to be able to cover, cover your inadequacy of not having your gear set up, you know, and that's, that's not a luxury that you're going to have. So dry fire, be familiar with your equipment, buy good equipment, and then pay attention to that equipment and always be vigilant to not just be following the guy in front of you. And, you know, like you're always looking for what's the most dangerous thing that could happen. Bear, where would he come from? Probably here. So I'm going to look in there. What's the most likely thing will happen? Nothing. I need to keep walking up the mountain, but you know, keeping the mindset of like, okay, well, if something did happen, what would I do? Okay. I'd pop, pull the pistol and I'd probably move behind this tree or something. So what's the relationship like between, um, fast and smooth? So I, I, when I teach pistol stuff that especially speed stuff, I say, Hey, it's perfect execution of flawless technique is speed. So if I'm efficient, efficiency is, is simply nothing more than doing the absolute minimum required to accomplish the task. So, uh, if you're inefficient, you're doing extra things between where you're at and where you want to be. So, uh, I would say smooth is important. Um, but slow is still slow. So, you know, you need to, you, you need to practice perfect technique when you're dry firing, but you also need to practice speed because if your brain has never worked at, at those speeds, you, when that bear comes at you, you are going to draw that, the gun fast. So you might as well have some experience doing it before that moment comes. What is perfect technique? Um, so without getting into too much of a pistol lesson, you need a, a grip, a, a pistol grip is the, the, the reason you have a pistol grip for the type of shooting that we're going to do is to manage recoil and, and get the gun pointed at what you're looking at. So you need a consistent grip that gets the gun pointed exactly where you're looking every single time. So consistency, consistent, uh, procedure results in a predictable result. So if I have a consistent grip, then that gun's going to be pointed in a predictable way. If it's pointed in a predictable way, I can make that on target. So when you're practicing your grip, the finger position that you have relative to the gun needs to be exactly the same every single time. 
That way, when you pull that gun out, it's pointed relative to your hand the same every single time. And that is where your speed's going to come from. And then uh, a lot of guys will say, oh, I grip it 60-40 or 50-50 or whatever. You're holding on to a bear pistol you're trying to save your life with. Hold on to that thing. The reason I, I have a really good grip is to manage that recoil because I'm not going to shoot one shot. I'm going to shoot three to five shots, and I need to get all those rounds on target super, super fast. And the odds of you having perfect lighting conditions with you know n- no distractions in that moment we're going to see a perfect sight picture is zero. So you need to be able to pull that gun out, index it at what you're looking at, and shoot shots that are good enough to get rounds on target to affect that target so that it's not going to continue attacking you. One thing that I'll say about shooting a charging animal, um, and this is something that honestly people fantasize about a little bit, um, and it, it doesn't occur all that often, but it's happened to me a handful of times just because I've ended up doing this kind of thing a lot. I think people, and myself included, tend to think that they can fire more shots than they actually can. Like yep. these, these animals are moving very, very quickly. So if you, you know, stand on a street where, you know, cars are coming past you at 30, 35 miles an hour and, you know, you look at something that's 20 yards away and have somebody, you know, tap you on the shoulder when that car gets to that 20 yard mark and then you get to open your eyes and, (laughs) you know, pretend to react to it. It's a very short amount of time. So thinking about getting multiple shots off can be part of that fantasy. So I say wait as long as possible, because while you have a very short amount of time, you do also have more time than you think, but you've got time for one shot. And the closer that critter is, the higher your odds are that that shot is going to impact somewhere serious, um, especially with a rifle. So, you know, and if I could go back and do over the, the critters that charged and tried to kill me, I would wait a little bit longer. Would you? And by a little bit, I mean like half of a second. Instead of firing as soon as I could possibly fire, I would just take that half second to try and make sure that it really, really counted. And the the last thing that you need to think about during this sequence is stepping to the side. Um, And as a kid, I did some bullfighting. And, you know, I was just rodeo was part of what we did. And, um, we always had some bulls around that were a little bit hooky and you learn really quickly the hard way that when a bull charges you, you wait until the last second, cause he's got all the momentum in the world and it doesn't take you very long to step to the side and he goes right past you. And then, you know, in the case of a bull, you just run towards his hip as fast <laughs> as you can and keep spinning in a circle because you can do that faster than he can spin and just hope that he doesn't figure it out and swap directions on you. So the last thing you need to think about on a charge is after you've fired that shot and before the animal gets to you, have a plan to move to the side and let him go on past you. Don't just anchor up and, and absorb the blow. Fight it out with a 900-pound grizzly. Yeah, so some of these bears here on the island get up to 1,500 pounds. It's a big bear. So even if you kill him at three yards, he ain't stopping before <laughs> before he gets to you. Okay, so you're about to get tackled with the force of an entire defensive football team at once. Not a good scenario. But uh, yeah, so what does dry firing practice look like like? You know, do you put a dot on the wall in your house or go out to the range or what's that? So I do it at wherever I'm at, whether it's uh, 
my house, hotel room, whatever. But I, I start slow because I want perfect technique. So it's, it's make a, sure your gun's empty, probably. Yeah, it's probably a good place to start. So <laughs> after you've, you know, unloaded your gun and all the normal disclaimer stuff, I go extremely slow, make sure I have perfect technique, perfect grip every single time. And then uh, once that's absolutely perfect, and by perfect, I mean like, I pull that gun up and it's pointed exactly where I'm looking at. Like I'm not, I'm not aiming at a light switch plate on the wall. I'm aiming at the screw on the light switch plate on the wall. So it's perfect every single time. Then I'll start adding the speed to it. And at the end I'll start, I'll go really fast because I got to kind of know where, what my limits are. So, you know, you were talking about like pulling that gun out and breaking a shot. And I assume it was, it didn't go exactly where you were, wanting it to on that first shot when it was a little bit further away. Right. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you the example of, of the hippo that charged me. It started at about eight yards. And as soon as I got a visual of it, you know, I had my hands on my rifle kind of at, at low ready and came into my shoulder, which was a very quick move. Mm-hmm. And as soon as it touched my shoulder, potentially before it touched my shoulder, <laughs> I fired sure. and I hit it directly between the eyes. Wow. Okay. This is not a good shot. That's a bad shot. That is a shot in the, in the sinus cavity. Mm. So if anything, he accelerated. So my next shot was as I was stepping to the side and it was a point blank range with gun barrel touching it. If I would have waited and made that a one shot scenario, then it, then that shot would have broken at four yards. Now my angle has changed. So my target just got twice as big effectively. And I've had a little bit more time to settle in and think about it. I've still got time to fire that shot and move. That's what I wish I would have done. My experience and you, you've guided thousands of people over decades, but my experience with hunters is they rush shots constantly. They, they don't have a process, a predetermined process for that moment. They, their focus is all in getting to that moment of, of shooting the animal. And then they don't have a routine or a shot process or anything for, it's just like, I'm within the range that's acceptable, jump up there and shoot this thing, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they rush that moment and it's, it, it's never a good thing. And not, not saying that you did, but right. I'm saying, you know, yeah. it happens constantly. No, I, t- I totally did. I totally did. hundred percent. And you know, that's one thing of many things that I've learned from you is to start breaking my shot sequence down into steps that I am talking to myself as I go through it. Um, and maybe it's not in the amount of time that it takes me to actually like mouth the words out of my brain, but I'm, I'm going through this checklist as I shoot and, and I've carried that over into archery, um, pistol, shotgun, rifle, everything. And I'm, I'm still practicing and I don't get it right every time, but it, it is huge. It is huge to actually have a process and go through it. And the last animal that I shot, I went through that process probably six times before I actually took the shot because I didn't have anything else going on and I wasn't going to let anybody rush me in that moment. Right. We got a lot of eyes on this one moment and you know, who cares if I take this shot now or I take this shot in a minute if the animal's not moving? You know, if we're in a good concealed position, you know, I'm going to go, everything's going to be absolutely perfect before I break the shot. And uh, 
I think that if I could help hunters out at all, it would be know what you're going to do in that moment and then do that. You're going to get a range. You're going to get a stable position. You're going to get a, the perfect holdover for the shot. You're going to check the wind. You're going to know exactly where you want that bullet to go. You're going to know exactly the orientation of the animal you want before you take the shot, and then you go through the actual shot process. That's one of the things that I brought up to you when we came out here is that, like, I always think of the perspective of, you know, a target is a given. When you go out hunting, no matter where you go, you're, the, the level of pressure you're going to experience when that moment comes is totally different than sitting at the range and sighting your gun in and being prepared where you're ability to control yourself when that moment happens i mean the the three of us are here hunting a mountain goat we may never come back here for the rest of our lives so when you get into that moment and you're at that point you could be huffing and puffing because you just climbed up to the spot like you did or you did and then you're you're getting there and now it's that you're you're not at the range anymore You're, you're sitting there looking at this animal that you flew across the country to come after or it could be the guy sitting at home that's been watching this whitetail on his camera for six months and he's never seen it on the hoof and it comes walking out. But that's what I always look at is like the 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 differentiation to a, a hunter who is not in a high pressure situation of target shooting like you are consistently mm-hmm. performing. When you get to that moment, you may be the greatest hunter in the world to get yourself to where you need to be. But then when that shot has to be executed, a lot of us like I, I have. I'll say it myself and I've had other friends say you almost black out you almost go to that like you make the shot and if somebody said hey what happened in that moment I mean you've probably seen it a hundred times with people when they shoot an elk and you go out and say where did you hit them I don't know and it's because that moment is almost like a blackout because you prepared everything up to that moment but you weren't preparing yourself for the moment right a hundred percent and I've seen some very experienced guys rush that moment and it's a bad result and I'll tell you this I've done a ton of testing and you know, it's backed up by tons of data from people that are a lot smarter than I am. If you're wearing a watch that has a heart rate monitor on it and your heart rate is over 150 beats a minute, stop what you are doing and recheck everything you've just done because your brain will not function properly over 150 beats a minute. So if you look down and you're like, Oh, I'm at 150. Oh, I just climbed this giant mountain and there's the animal right there. I'm not saying you don't shoot over that. I'm saying, recheck everything because your brain will make things look the way it wants to look the way your brain wants it to be instead of the way it actually is in that moment. Like when we were shooting sniper comps and stuff like that, we get in those situations where you were super high. I mean, they call them stress shoots for a reason, super high uh, heart rate, really intense stuff. And it's like, no, we're going to engage this target this way, checklist every single time, because that is the most efficient way to do it, right? Get a range, you know, you go down the list, and then you you drop that shot in on target. But if if guys would do that, I think success rates on hunts would go through the roof. You know, how many, we were talking about guys that missed the entire elk at 20 yards with a bow. You know, those guys, it wasn't because their equipment wasn't good enough or they weren't good enough. They literally got in that moment and was just overcome by events and flew that arrow into the sky yeah and and it happens guys it happens and if it's happened to you hopefully it's something that you can learn from and this is part of the process to change that outcome in the future when you come up against it again now earlier this spring i was heading to a sniper competition i was on my motorcycle and you were teaching a mental management class right 
but the class was occurring while I was riding. So I pulled over on this Indian reservation in Idaho at a liquor store and I like punch this thing up on my phone and then figure out how to get it. So it'll play through my Bluetooth headset, and my helmet cool. and get back out on the road. And I'm listening to Daniel Horner give his mental management class, you know, as I'm riding my KTM to a, to a rifle competition. Super cool. Right. But not, not as cool as riding a motorcycle <laughs> to a sniper competition. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, uh, it was, it was challenging to do everything that I was doing and listening. And, um, I ran out of cell service a few times and I missed some really critical portions of that class. But one of the things that I did get that stuck with me so well, and it goes right into what you were saying, Patrick, is the desire for gain and the fear of loss. So when you're talking about the pressure that you're feeling, it's, and I, I want you to get into this, but I, I'm going to talk about it the way that I understood it. it. Is we think of pressure as as a force from the outside pushing in on us, but when you think about it from that perspective, the desire for gain and the fear of loss, it's more like tension. So it's something that's pulling us apart. And if you can find the center of that, then you can do really well. And I felt tremendous tension when I was up on the hillside hunting the other day, because I've got a guide right next to me. I have this once in a lifetime opportunity, something that I, that I dreamed about, but also thought that I would never get to experience. I've got a camera right next to me. That's going to record how this goes down, right? There's tremendous fear of loss and tremendous desire for gain. And I'm caught in the middle of this. I'm the middle of, of the tug of war. And you know, how do you settle out your mind and, and center in on that and still be able to perform? Go. (laughs) 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 Yeah. This is something that I love more than talking about and reading about than anything else, because it's, it is the key to success. It's the difference between the, the, the top performers and the, the guy that shows up and wins every single time he shows up. It's, it's so, and in that moment, it's the guy that takes control of the situation and makes what is supposed to happen, happen. So you you get up there and you've got the fear of loss, right? You've, you spent a ton of money to get there. You've got time away from your family. You've got uh, time away from the family leading up to this point as far as getting in shape and training and practicing. Uh, you've got all that stuff. Then you've got the desire for gain of, you know, you, you went away from your family to accomplish this goal. You want to actually accomplish it. You know, it means a lot to you or you wouldn't be there. You've got all the, these other eyes, um, watching you and stuff like social media doesn't do anything, but it exasperate this problem, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because now you've got thousands of potentially thousands of people watching this that, you know, like, Hey, you know, I've got to put a post up tomorrow of whether or not I, I did well or not. Or millions now that you're on TikTok. No. (laughs) (laughs) It was a good dance. You have to admit he did a good job. Yeah, exactly. I got 5 million views, man. I'm, I'm amazed. Right. I'm, you were a TikTok celebrity. (laughs) No big deal. No big deal. So, uh, you got all that stuff going on right there in that, in that one moment. But if you think about it, none of that stuff does anything to actually accomplish the objective that you set out there to do. Right. What do I have to do? I have to get a good range. I have to get a good body position. I have to know that my equipment is prepared properly, which is, is huge, which very, which people take more for granted than I would like, right? You know, like I zeroed those guns that we brought up here no less than seven times. They are 100% zero because the last thing that you want is to be in that moment and have the doubt of, man, is it good enough right now? 
you know? So get a good range, get a good hold, visualize that shot before you actually take it. You say, all right, this is the orientation of the animal. This is what the anatomy of the animal looks like. This is exactly where I want to put the bullet. This is what the wind's doing. This is where I need to hold to compensate for the wind. And then you visualize the reticle in that position and breaking the shot and watching that bullet go where it's supposed to go. And if you think about it, if you apply a proper range, you have a good body position, you break a good shot just like that, what absolutely must happen? The bullet has to hit where you're aiming, right? So if I know the the reason that everyone gets nervous and they feel that pressure isn't uh, anything more than just the fear of the unknown. You know, if I could, if I could go forward in my mind 30 seconds and tell you, James, there's no way I've already seen it. You hit the animal immediately. All that pressure is gone. Right. So I need to come up with a a plan and a procedure that Mm. cannot fail. So if I know my gears prepared and I get in that moment and I know I execute a, a plan properly, the desired result has to happen. And so that's what you do. You convince yourself that there's absolutely no way. I establish a plan that can't fail. So this plan can't do anything except result in a, in a dead mountain goat. And you get in that moment and you have total confidence. When I was in that moment, I, that goat was dead. It was all uh, 100% I had already hit that goat to the point that I, was, I went around with all the camera guys and everything twice because I want to make sure that everybody was ready because there was no way that he was getting away. So to me, that's how you mitigate that, that extreme nervousness. And, and again, like pay attention to your body. If you, if, if you aren't used to working in that environment and doing things with that super high heart rate, that super high level of stress, go do something to replicate that environment and see how you're going to react before you're actually there. Yeah. So one of the things that I did to prepare for this mountain goat hunt which was a little bit nutty, admittedly, is I took a 50-mile trip through uh, the largest wilderness area in Oregon Wow! without any food. So the only food that I ate was stuff that I either found or caught along the trail. And the first day was easy. I started at low elevation, and there were some huckleberries, and I caught a couple of fish, and um, ate some grouse wortle berries, and like things were good. The, at the end of the first day, I'd gained, um, several thousand feet in elevation and I was running out of food. I was basically walking my way into winter. So woke up the morning of the second day and found a couple berries, started hoofing it. I caught two fish that day that were like the size of my pinky finger and ate both of those. And then by the time I stopped that night, there were no more animals and I was sleeping, you know, amongst snow fields. So it was gone. There's no birds, nothing was growing. I was like, okay, not a big deal. Going to bed hungry, you know, go and summit this big mountain pass the next day. And, you know, at that point I was starting to feel kind of weak. I was like, well, there's this lake on this other side. There's this lake on the other side. I've caught fish in both of them before. Stop the first one. Barren, no fish. Stop at the second one. Barren, mm. no fish. Find like a dead frog that's got mold all over him. I was like, not good, not cool. Ate some onions, some wild onions. Wasn't doing a lot for me. <laughs> Ate some miner's <laughs> lettuce. Wasn't doing a lot for me. 
And, you know, I start looking around. I'm like, well, there's this lake here, but that's 3,000 feet of vertical. Don't know if I can make that. It's like, I'm just going to head down country and hope I get into food again. And I ended up taking the wrong trail. And this is an area that I used to guide in. It's an area that I'm very familiar with. And, you know, in, in that state, I made the wrong decision and I ended up climbing an extra couple thousand feet that I didn't need to climb going the wrong way, had to turn around and come back. Um, and then just wasn't running into anything. So I ended up hiking all the way out and finishing the trip that day, um, and, and getting picked up on the other side of the wilderness. But by the time I was done with that, I was losing vision. I didn't have, you know, much sensory control over my legs. You know, I was in a, I was in a mental place of a lot of stress where I still had to perform the task that I'd set out to perform, but didn't have the facilities that you have when you're comfortable. Mm -hmm. So that was just like a, it, it was partially physical, but for me, it was mostly just a mental test. Like, Hey, go do something hard on purpose, check in with yourself and then make sure that when you're going to go do something hard this fall, like mountain goat hunting on Kodiak <laughs> Island, Alaska, amongst 1500 pound bears, really intense alder brush and super steep hillsides on mountains that are crumbling on every step with all of the fear of loss and desire for gain. Like now I can go back to something that was previously difficult that I can remember that, okay, I did that. I performed there. Let's compare this to that. This is easier. That's the ground I'm going to stand on. Is that what you did, Patrick? When they start growing Reese's <laughs> peanut butter cups on trees, <laughs> I will head out and I will do that. Yeah. No, it's it's a good point that you're making, though, James. Mm -hmm. It's I always try to, you know, we this summer I did a lot of hikes, uh, not without food, but we did a lot of that <laughs> stuff to try to replicate some of that situational. And I, I, I think it, you're right. I think the part of the problem is feeling that level of discomfort that you're not used to. And I think I've, at least in my experience, especially last year, we saw it in Colorado. You know, we, we saw in Colorado last year, we started off with 15 people. We did not end up with 15 people at the end because yeah. it's one of those things that you may tell yourself you're ready. You could be physically ready. But that first time that you feel that level uncomfort uncomfortable where you're in pouring rain and you're starving – and things start to feel weird or like you were saying, I've had that happen where you get the, the dizzy spells and you're like staggering around and you're like in your brain, your brain's telling you, I just want to get out of here. And that's the time when you're finally, you know, realizing that this is you were preparing for this moment the entire time. I always use that. My favorite saying was the old man in the sea. A man can be defeated, but not destroyed. And the reason I've always liked that is because when you get up into the mountains, they have a way of defeating you. They have a way of making you feel like you're not going to make it out. You're, you're done. Your legs hurt. Your back hurts. You're, you're tired. Everything is against you. But then in that moment, you're like, no, I came here with a goal and I'm not leaving here until I, I finish. And that, I think, is what is the coolest part about all these. None of us will look back and stare at the, the, the mountain goat on our wall and be like, oh yeah, that's my great trophy. We're going to remember that story. We're going to remember how we got there and what we went through and what you guys did to get here, what we all did to get here, the amount of training we did up till now, all that stuff. It's awesome. It's like okay. one of those things that until people feel it, until you feel that level where you got to that point where you're like, I am so uncomfortable. I just want to be 
curled up in a ball in a Starbucks and I can't be, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it, it literally is. That's where people for the first time, you can have that experience. And our camera guy last year, oh, man. hopefully he's listening when he hears this. We yeah. all love him. Sawyer. Sawyer got, you know, when we got there, we were nervous about him. He was going through a lot of like questions. If if he had the ability, he would have killed me and Daniel <laughs> on several Because we almost killed him accidentally. <laughs> yes. Sliding him off yes. of cliffs and hitting him with rocks. But I, I, it was so cool to see. At the end of that, you know, one of the one of the breaking moments we had out there with Sawyer, we, me and Daniel made one of many horrible decisions to cross across a very slippery, rocky cliff. And Sawyer By went, slippery, we mean a sheet of ice. Yes. It was a literal sheet of a ice. A sheet of ice with nothing to grab a hold of and a very steep fall on the other side. And when we got to the other side of this, Sawyer ended up going down and around and started laying into us about how stupid we were and why are we up here and mm-hmm. why are we doing this? And I remember him saying, you know, I'm done. I quit. And Daniel looked at him and goes, but do you? Because look where you are, man. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do now? You're at 12,000 feet. What are you going to do? And he freaking went right up that mountain. He He, did. He killed it, man. He did. Super impressive. And his entire demeanor after that, when I think it just, it's one of those things that people have that moment when they're up in these places. Like his entire demeanor after that, he was laughing. He was having fun. He realized it's supposed to hurt. It yeah. sucks. That's one thing. Like I, when I get out there and, and get around guys that are, you know, the, and you know, it's it's hard, man. Mm-hmm. And and you get out there and they're like, man, my, like my freaking feet hurt. Well, dude, you walked freaking twenty miles carrying sixty pounds on your back up a mountain. Your feet are supposed to hurt. Yeah, <laughs> you're but cold. Did you die? Yeah, but did <laughs> you die? Yeah, exactly. or, or like you're like it's <laughs> you know you're cold and wet. Well, it's snowing and it's been raining for three days. Like it's you're supposed to be cold and wet. Like that's fine. You have that's to find part, some. It's, it's okay. Yeah, you have to find some comfort in being uncomfortable on backpack hunts or just hard hunts. Yeah, yeah. you look at guys like Cole out here. I mean, yeah, oh, he lives. He's telling us these stories. He's sitting there in a teepee the other night, smiling and laughing and telling jokes. There's 50 While mile an hour winds blowing through. Was, yeah, and it, he's acting like it's just another day on the mountain, smiling yeah. and happy. And it's because his understanding of discomfort compared to most people is completely different. Mm-hmm. There was a guy that put it in perspective for me not too long ago because I was I was doing a endurance a, a like a evaluation on my body, you know. So you, you had to do all this stuff with all these hoses and all this crap hooked up to you to see, you know, how you needed to train and everything. So he ran me up to my, my max heart rate. So I went up to like 187 or something, or I forgot what it was, 187-ish for a heart rate. And I felt like I was going to die. Like, I mean, it is horrible if you've ever done anything like that. You get up to that, those high heart rates, like I felt like my head was going to pop off. two flights of stairs for me. (laughs) (laughs) It was was absolutely (laughs) atrocious. And so what he did was he was like, hey, you're going to go to 165 beats a minute then you're gonna go to 170 beats a minute then you're gonna go to 175 and you stayed in these zones for for two minutes and you're like oh no big deal it's two minutes you know this whole thing took like 16 minutes right so we ran all the way up to my 187 100 and whatever beats a minute and then we came down and i'm like okay and I, I like i said i felt like i was going to die so we go through all this he does all the the evaluation his name's robert killian he's like the world's greatest uh obstacle course racer wins everything I looked at his, he had just done a, uh, a 25 mile run or something, something crazy. He stayed at 180 beats a minute for two hours and 16 minutes. Mm. 
and I thought I was going to die after two minutes, <laughs> right? And I'm like, wow, I'm capable of so much more than I feel like I am. Because if that dude can push his body to 180 beats for two and you know two hours and 16 minutes, I've surely got more than two minutes in me, you know. And that's that's a great attitude and a great perspective. I honestly feel like if I were in that scenario, I would think, wow, I am capable of so much less than Robert Killian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am 100%. <laughs> so much less. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I am more than I thought I was for sure. And so yeah. now I get there and I look at it and I'm like, I'm like, all right, that dude can do that for two hours and 16 minutes. Like, I'm not going to die. I will be fine. This will end. Tomorrow will come. Mm-hmm. No one's still getting smoked. Yeah. <laughs> Now, Jordan, your perspective on this hunt is different because while we're on the front side of the trigger, you're on the back side of the camera. Mm-hmm. So how do you prepare for a hunt like this? How do you execute the hunt and what pressures do you feel? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, preparing is a lot like your guys's, except just not the shooting as much. Um, but that being said... Like, I still should carry a pistol or something for bears and be proficient in that, which I need to get better at. But anyways, so, that like, the physical is probably the biggest deal because, um, the yeah, the physical and then the gear, I would say, because I can't be the reason that we come off. Like, I can't, you know what I mean? I'm the last person that needs to say, like, hey, we need to go because I'm supposed to be filming you guys. So, the physical stuff is pretty big because I need to be able to keep up and then like there, I mean, there's sometimes where we're, we could be running up a mountain to shoot a goat on the other side or like, you know, maybe a little faster than we did, obviously, but I need to be right behind you to do that. So the physical is big and then the gear is big because same thing. I can't be the reason that we come off. So like my boots got to be dialed, my, my tent, backpack, sleeping bag, all that stuff. It's got to be dialed. So I'd say that's pretty much how I prepare besides the little, you know, like up here with cameras, figuring out how to keep them out of the rain or keep them from frying. Um, the other thing is probably like keeping batteries charged, especially where here there's really no sunshine. So you can't rely off of solar. So then you have to carry more battery packs. So stuff like logistical stuff like that, you got to dial. Well, I think you're underselling yourself on the required technical proficiency of running a camera and thinking about light and, you know, like angles, a lot of fit photographers and videographers get the benefit of setting up their shots. Yeah. And if you're filming a hunt, you don't really get that. Like the the animal is dictating where we are, um, Mm -hmm. to, to a much more extent than we are dictating where we are. And, you know, you're making the best out of that. So how do you handle that? Like you had to film, you know, a shot more or less directly into the sun the other day. Mm -hmm. Some, I don't know, honestly, some of that stuff I think is like the hunter in me. That's, I just kind of know how that stuff goes. So that stuff really doesn't stress me out that much just because I'll know, like, I've just been around some of those situations enough where, Maybe I can anticipate what the animal is going to do a little bit more than, I guess, somebody else who doesn't have the hunting background. Yeah. Um, if that makes any sense. So, like, that part doesn't really stress me out as much because I just know that I'll, f- I'll figure it out. One of the things that I appreciate the most about hunting with you, Jordan, is that 
you know, we get to operate together as a team. Like we're, we're helping each mm -hmm. other, um, on a lot of things that I would never anticipate, you know, a camera person helping me with, like, for example, you know, we're, we're up on, on the side of this, this mountain near the peak and the rock was rotten and crumbly. It was extraordinarily mm -hmm. steep. It was right at the angle of repose where loose rock cannot lay on it. So it's almost a sheer cliff, but not quite. And every piece of rock that I grabbed was breaking in my hands. So I couldn't get a good purchase with my hands and I couldn't get a good purchase with my feet. And because I had, you know, a couple of days worth of gear on my back, I couldn't really move my head around. Um, so I couldn't look up to see what was above me on the rock. And I felt like at that point I could neither go left, right, <laughs> forward or back. You know, I was fixed in this position on this cliff and you were a few feet behind me on the hillside. And, you know, I was able to be like, Hey, I need some help. And you're like, okay, move your left foot down, left down right there. Okay. You're good. Right foot. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's, that's huge. That is just absolutely huge to have somebody that can, you know, talk you off of a cliff. <laughs> I was glad I wasn't where you were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, uh, this has been a tremendous hunt already. We've got more to come. Mm -hmm. Um, we're going to do, uh, another episode at least before we leave here. But coming up, I'm turning the gun over to Jordan mm -hmm. and she is going to be hunting for Sitka Blacktail. Patrick still has a mountain goat tag. Daniel and I have both punched our mountain goat tags. High five. <laughs> Pretty awesome. Um, Daniel has the first ever mountain goat killed with a cross rifle. He beat me by a solid 20 minutes or so. No big deal. I, I actually scream, pull the trigger. He's going to shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we're going to have some mountain goat for dinner tonight. We're going to do a little bit more salmon fishing and see if we can, um, you know, rearrange a date with Patrick and that feisty little brown bear. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, hope that this, this, you know, 50 mile per hour wind blows out and we get a chance to get back out there again a little bit. But for now, we're inside and we're comfortable and got some time to think about this and continue developing products um, and product ideas, which is a really cool, mm -hmm. you know, opportunity for the four of us to collaborate on this stuff and uh yeah any closing thoughts for you guys if you get a chance to go to kodiak alaska it's absolutely awesome yeah this place is it's we it's, stood in one spot i saw 17 bald eagles yep. two bears four or five different species of duck a seal all from one spot an with the ocean place. crashing yeah in the back. It's an and a rainbow place. no big deal and the rainbow yeah, no yeah. big deal <laughs> yeah yeah, and, and we're up here hunting with Cole Kramer. Um, we briefly mentioned that earlier. And, you know, I, I tend to be pretty critical of other outfitters, being an outfitter myself, and I don't have any criticism of Cole. He's, he was he's he was a tremendous amazing. job. Phenomenal. He was, like I said, those guys, both him and Trevor with us, I mean, oh, yeah. they were <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Broke it, down, a I mean, caped out a mountain goat and, I mean, A, a got us in there, but then skinned out and broke down a mountain goat in like 30 minutes. It well, was insane and to be like there's a lot of people out there that are a master of their craft and obviously yeah. cole knows what he's doing but when you see to me the the definition of a a good guide is somebody who's as passionate about getting you to an animal as you are to get it yeah. and cole's drive to like i mean he was in like focus mode he just like between 
uh, glassing and moving and like, hey, wait here. I'm going to go do this, this, and this. I mean, the guy was on it the whole time. And yeah. you could just tell he was as passionate about Daniel getting a goat as Daniel was excited about getting one. That's To me, that's cool. That's when you see that level of enthusiasm is really cool to see. And the depth of knowledge on everything. I mean, just, Unbelievable. It was yeah. impressive. Yeah. We'll get Cole on here too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, and then for closing, people can get a hold of Patrick by doing what? They can get a hold of me by uh, going to, uh, well, you can email me at patrick.hanley at sigsour.com. I mean, I want people to be able to reach out to us. Uh, so real briefly, I know I touched on this before, but what I do there is I'm the rifle and ammo product manager. So um, it is big for me to be able to get contact with people out in the field, uh, stuff that they have. That's what we're doing here. That's what I like to hear is, you know, critique or anything positive, negative, whatever from the field. So, yeah, absolutely reach out to me with anything with that. Awesome. And if they want to hear more from Daniel Horner? Uh, easiest thing is just Instagram, daniel.horner3gun. Um, just uh, send me something on that. Okay. Sweet. Good good thing to follow. And uh, we didn't really talk too much about, about your accomplishments. We'll, we'll do that maybe another time. But Daniel um, has the distinction of being the best uh, firearms shooter uh, on the planet who's currently alive. So that's, that's pretty neat to be the best in the world at something. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, gives him some, just a little bit of credibility when he's talking about guns. Just and it makes me feel smidge. safe in bear country. <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. Jordan, bud, Jordan, bud on Instagram, on the gram. All on right. Gram. Thanks folks. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.